0: Good morning, it's good to see you here today, happy 4th of July weekend, I know we got a lot of people uh, traveling for the long weekend, so I'm I'm glad that you're here, Uh, and I hope the rest of you are watching online uh, as we get into the last of the seven letters from Revelation. I have to say it's been a lot of fun sort of exploring the context and the history and the archaeology of these seven cities with you. If there's a disadvantage to this approach, we just spent seven weeks covering seven cities. And uh, the disadvantage of that is if you were reading it in real time, it would take you like five minutes to get through that whole, that whole passage. And then you would immediately move on to all of the things that are happening behind the scenes, all the things that Jesus wants these churches to know about to motivate them to, to make these corrections and to do the things that he's calling upon them to do. And so what you get instead is two months of these corrections <laughs> waiting for the motivation to come. But it is kind of woven through the text too because throughout Jesus has been making promises and there are all these promises to the overcomers and uh, he's uh, reassuring his readers he says things like the overcomers are going to eat from the tree of life. They're, they're going to eat the hidden manna. They're going to rule the nations. They'll be dressed in white. They'll have their name written in the book of life, and it won't be blotted out. It offers these reassurances, and there's a certain parallel here in, in these, uh, these letters to the churches to the Sermon on the Mount and what we typically call the, the Beatitudes. Because in the Beatitudes, Jesus, Jesus tells us who the, who the blessed people really are. And it's not the people that you think. It's not the people that you would expect. The people who have worldly wealth or, or who have gained uh, uh, power or influence, it, it very often it's the meek, it's the lowly, it's, 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 it's the poor. These are the ones who have something to be happy about. These are the ones who will really be blessed. And the parallel is, 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 is kind of this. that in, in the kingdom, while we're still in this world, there are going to be times that are hard. There are going to be things that we'll face that, that will be difficult. There will be trials. There will be persecution. There will be tribulations. There will be lean times. But you need to remember that in the kingdom, what looks like success to the world often isn't. It, it, it's, n- it's just not the same thing. That message would have been particularly poignant in today's city, in the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was a very prosperous city. In many ways, Laodicea was a city of excess. They had much more than they needed. They had around 80,000 residents, we think. Their population was around 80,000, which makes it, for that time period, uh, quite a large city, but really half the size of some of the largest cities that that we've looked at, or, or less than that. And yet, they had two agoras, two theaters, and an amphitheater arena. Why did, why did they have all of this space for their 80,000 residents? Well, mostly so that they could boast to other cities about the stuff that they had. So they really built more than they, more than they needed. They had many important statues and altars to gods and emperors. They had an extensive bathhouse complex, a gymnasium. They had public latrines, which in the ancient world, it really is a quite a big deal. Uh, and they had a very sophisticated system of running water throughout the city. While they're not the largest of the seven cities, in some ways they embodied the best of all the other cities. Like Smyrna, is a carefully planned city with shining marble streets. Like Pergamum, it's the center of pagan worship and Greek philosophy. Like Thyatira, they had a lucrative lucrative textile industry. And like Sardis, they were a very wealthy city, minting their own coins, and they were a banking center center for Asia Minor. In a lot of ways, we're coming full circle, like back to our first city of Ephesus. Uh, Laodicea is a lot like Ephesus. Had a lot of the same uh, opportunities and qualities as a city except that they were not a seat of government. Ephesus was a seat of government, and so it always had that weighing on it. Laodicea had the freedom to be exclusively invested in commerce, and one of the reasons that they were as lucrative a city as they, as they were is because they existed on the same east-west trade route that ended in Ephesus. So all the benefit that Ephesus gets from being on that trade route, Laodicea gets to play the middleman in that relationship. But also, they're on a very important north-south trade route that leads up to the other inland cities of Asia Minor. And so they kind of have the best of all possible uh, economic worlds. The downside of uh, Laodicea is like Philadelphia, they were subject to frequent earthquakes. However, unlike Philadelphia, When Laodicea was completely destroyed by an earthquake in 60 A.D., the Roman Empire offered them assistance to rebuild, and they turned them down. They said, now we'll rebuild ourselves. That's the kind of economic power that the city had. They rejected assistance from the Roman Empire and, in effect, asserted some degree of independence from Roman uh, rule which was uh, evidenced by the fact that they had a council house in the city, which indicates, again, that they, they kind of ran their own affairs and had some degree of separation from the Roman Empire. So, this is the context, and we open up the letter in Revelation chapter 3. It starts with verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He's getting right to the point. I don't think, no matter how we read between the lines, no matter how we understand what's going on here, having Jesus tell you that he's about to spit you out of his mouth probably bad probably not this this is not and and there's notice this is one of those letters where he doesn't say well here's what you've got going for you he immediately gets into this now we often interpret lukewarm to mean apathetic scripture of course sometimes uses heat and fire to represent passion and enthusiasm and faithfulness uh, 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 the fire is associated with the spirit. Yeah. And, and so we kind of think ho- hot means good. To be hot means passionate on, on fire. And cold then must mean cold-hearted and, and uninterested. And so we've often presented this as if it represented sort of a spectrum of enthusiasm. You know, you could be hot on fire for Jesus, or you could be cold-hearted, but instead you're in the middle, and I'd w- I'd rather you, you were cold. I've always kind of struggled with that interpretation because it's essentially saying God would rather you had no faith than a little faith. And I'm like, well, d- I'm not sure that makes sense. But here's the thing. While apathy has no place in our faith or in our churches, And there's an important message to be had there. That is not the meaning of this particular passage. What we have to understand is that a major deficit that the city of Laodicea had was they had no local water source. Right? So the closest water source is several miles away. And water had to be piped into the city. Now, nearby Colossae, it's a city that you know, Colossae had a cold mountain spring. and So you had this nice, clean, fresh, cold mountain spring water, the kind of water that you would want to bottle up and take with you to other places or sell at a high markup at the, at the convenience store. Hierapolis, another nearby city, had these impressive hot springs. They're still a major tourist attraction today, beautiful hot springs. And Heropolis it had these healing properties. And, of course, you know the Romans, how big they are into baths. Well, they built bathhouses at Heropolis that took advantage of these hot springs. And people would come from all over the world to soak themselves in the healing waters of Heropolis. Laodicea had neither. They had a water source seven miles away that they piped in and they had a very complex solution to their water problem. But that complex solution had its own problems. This is a section of uh, the actual pipe that fed water to the city of Laodicea. And what you're seeing there is a buildup of solids on the inside of that pipe. So they built this pipe system. It's several miles long, and no matter what the water was like at the beginning of the pipe, by the time it comes out the end of the pipe, it's lukewarm. It's, It's tepid water. Not only that, it was so filled with minerals, like the occasional mineral water, especially if it's cold, warm mineral water is particularly disgusting and warm mineral water has a tendency to leave these hard deposits on everything. And so they have this elaborate pipe system that they're constantly having to open up and chip away the deposits to keep those pipes open. This is their water supply. So Jesus picks up on this theme. He recognizes this, this, is, this is part of what it meant to live in the city of Laodicea and he says you guys don't have cold water You don't have hot water. You have this lukewarm, tepid, nasty-tasting water that nobody wants to drink. Jesus applies this to the church. What is he saying? Probably worse than saying you are apathetic Christians. Essentially, Jesus is saying you are useless. And Christ's admonishment to the church is that they should be useful. Hot water has a purpose, right? You're going to go take a nice dip. You want the water to be nice and warm. Cold water has a purpose. You're going to take a a big drink, a refreshing cool off. You want that water to be nice and cold. What you don't want is something in between. You don't want that, that water that is lukewarm. You want it to be useful water. This is a very important distinction, I think. An apathetic church would be probably inactive. What we need to understand about the church in Laodicea is this is a very active church. They're doing a lot. They're busy. They're, in fact, quite impressed with themselves. They, they, They think they're doing great. They are outwardly successful. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, you are useless to the kingdom. Now this message would have come as a deep shock to the church at Laodicea. They see themselves in extremely positive light. And why not? We are the people doing all these things and we don't even need any help. That's, this is what Jesus says in verse 17. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. See what Laodicea does? Laodicea practice a godless self-reliance. In Philadelphia the church was probably tempted to believe that you know we're too small and we're too ill-equipped to make a difference for the kingdom. And Jesus says to that church, no, look, I put an open door before you. There is literally nothing that can stop you. In contrast, the church at Laodicea says, we've got it all. We've got the money. We've got the people. We've got the resources. We can make things happen. But Laodicea took pride in its worldly resources and its personal abilities. And Jesus says, You're kind of useless to me right now. I mean, it was Jesus, right? Who said it's practically impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Shocked people when they heard that statement. So who, 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 could, who could get in if not the wealthy? The poor and the weak believer has a distinct advantage in the kingdom in that they really don't have an option to rely on anything else. And maybe you've been at that place. I've certainly been at that place sometimes in in my life. I remember a trip that Lisa and I made down. We were living in Washington State, and we made this trip down to Pepperdine University for a church conference down there. Our our whole church was deeply involved, and a bunch of people were flying down. I was a poor student, couldn't afford to fly down, and so we decided to drive down. And since we were driving down, they said, "Can can you take all the sound equipment? Because we were supposed to do this presentation down at the conference. Can you take all the sound equipment?" Well, I, I had a uh, Ford Taurus, so I went down to the U-Haul and got a hitch put onto the Ford Taurus, and we rented this U-Haul trailer. We haul all this sound equipment. There's another young couple that decided to go down with us. They didn't have enough money for plane tickets either, and so we're Making this long drive all the way down the coast of California, went to the conference, had a great time, pack it all up, we're coming back, and we get right around Stockton, which is one of my least favorite parts of the whole state. And something in the engine, my my friend was driving at the time, something in the engine goes clunk, and he says, "What was that?" I don't know. A couple more miles. Clunk, 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 and then the whole thing stops. All grinds to a halt, and now we're sitting on the side of Interstate 5, waiting on tow service. Tow service shows up. I've got a trailer. They they can't they can't tow us, and so we wait another hour for another tow truck to show up that can load uh, my Taurus onto the flatbed of the truck, and it's got a hitch at the back for the trailer and then uh, this guy shows up with his wife and kid, and they're in the cab of the truck, and he he looks at the four of us, and he says, I don't have any room for you in the truck, so you're going to have to ride in your car. But it's not technically legal, so I need you to keep your heads down. So we're in my Ford Taurus with which has a, a transmission that is, is, is basically turned into a brick. It's completely, completely gone. And we are keeping our heads down below the seats while this guy hauls us over to some place where we can get the car assessed. And we are laughing our fool heads off. And one of my friends says to me, he says, How on earth are you this calm? I would be coming unglued. How are you this calm? And I said, I don't have any choice. What am I going to do at this point? I've got no money. I made this trip because I didn't have any money. And my car is toast, and I don't, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do about it. But worrying about it will accomplish nothing. I have no choice at this point but to trust that God has a plan for us and it's all going to work out. There is an advantage of being in that space where you've run out of other options and you have nothing but God to rely upon. Because let's face it, when we have options, we tend to choose to not rely on God. In fact, in a lot of ways, we'll do anything within our power to avoid that circumstance where we have to rely on God some reason we seem a little bit terrified of it. We are enamored with our prosperity and we will go to great lengths to avoid dependence on anyone or anything, even the creator of the universe. So this is what Jesus says to this church. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. They are counseled, essentially, to seek godly provisions. And these are all local references. Uh, The banking industry, minting of coins, all of this was taking place here in Laodicea. that's That's not the gold you need. You need the gold that I refine. They've got this textile industry. In, I- interestingly enough, their textile industry centered around black wool. So they produce this very, very uh, exquisite black fabric, this black textile. He says, that's, that's not the textile you need. You need to buy white robes from me. And he says, you, you get salve for your eyes city of Laodicea actually had a hospital, and what they were famous for was this eye salve. It's made from a ground-up mineral, and, and people come from around the known world to go to Laodicea to treat eye ailments with this salve. And he says, what you need is a salve from me because you need to open your eyes. In other words, you've got banks, but you're poor. You've got a textile industry, but you're naked. You've got an eye clinic, but you're blind. This is the irony of relying on the world. Faith in worldly provisions is a faith in shadows. What Laodicea represents, they represent the temptation to favor the real world, in quotes, over the kingdom. And hey, I know we use that language. We use that language sometimes even in the church. We say things like, you know, church and faith, that's fine, that's all good and well, but some of us have to live in the real world. What are we saying? What is the assumption there? The assumption is that this world, as, as we've observed it, as we have lived in it, this world is real. And the things of Jesus, the things of faith, the things that the church and the minister talk about, the things of the Bible, these are like a Sunday school fantasy. And when we have time for that, we'll get to it. But right now we have to deal with real world things. And it's no surprise to us that unbelievers and atheists and agnostics use this language of dismissing the things of God as if they were not a part of the real world. But it should be jarring when Christians use that language, shouldn't it? It should bother us when we hear ourselves use that language. The culture says to us constantly, you know, you don't, you don't really need God. You don't need Jesus. You don't need that Bible. You don't need that church. Just rely on reason. Reason. Essentially, what we're saying is trust yourself. Trust yourself to know what's true. Trust yourself to know what's good. I have one question for the trust yourself crowd. How's that going? How's that turning out for you? I don't know about you, but it seems to me the real world is a bit of a disaster. While our cultured elite are celebrating their departure from the created order because they know better than God, and they redefine lust and mental disorders as identities, and they throw temper tantrums over their personal pronouns, Around the world, war and poverty and disease continue to prove that humanity can be pretty inhumane. You know, right now in our world, there are an estimated 40 million people living in slavery. There are an estimated 800 million people who don't have enough to eat. There are 560 million Christians around the world right now who are living under persecution. And I don't mean somebody picked on them on their social media account. I mean people whose lives and livelihood and liberty are at stake. There are 4.2 billion people on our planet right now who live under a dictatorship. On a weekend like this, we celebrate liberty. It bears noticing that the number of people who live under dictatorship is growing in our world, not shrinking, but growing. Back home, in our republic, where we value freedom and democracy, back home our leaders are doing their best impression of totalitarianism, using whatever crises, real or not, in order to gain whatever power they can grasp at often creating real crises in the name of resolving crises that we didn't have before they mentioned them. Now, I realize there's been some good news lately. And I realize that everybody's kind of hoping that in the next couple of uh, election cycles, there'll be shifts in all of this. But there's a couple of things we need to understand. Sometimes, one government party can be better for us than others. But generally speaking, politics is corrupt. It really doesn't matter which party we're talking about. More important than that, we have to understand that legal and political victories will continue to be overshadowed by declining morality. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, all you have to do is watch the news this week. Say, okay, we have a political, legal victory where the court finally reverses a ridiculous decision. And what happens? Complete histrionics of people who are convinced that losing the right to kill infants is the greatest humanitarian crisis of our age. That is the sickness of our world. Now, I realize that lovely, beautiful things happen. It's not my intent just to focus on the negative and make you feel bad about things. Lovely and beautiful things happen, and people can be fantastic and marvelous and glorious. But I want to make this distinction. Scripture says, Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And if you observe, if you watch, you're going to know this to be true. You're going to know that every really great thing in your life, every virtuous thing, every beautiful thing, every lovely thing that you have experienced was created by God. And every broken, miserable, diseased, ugly thing is a perversion of what God intended for you. Now, we don't always make the connection between rejecting God and the miserable circumstances that it creates in our lives. But that is exactly what is happening. It's what happens to us. I can testify to you that all the worst things that have happened to me have happened because I chose things that were ungodly. It's what happens to the world. In this real world, so-called, Drug and alcohol abuse are up. Depression and suicide are up. Sixty percent of the American public either doesn't believe God exists at all or doesn't believe he can do anything about their life. The further we get from the truth and light of Jesus Christ, the worse things get, and yet no one seems to want to make that connection. Now, the moral condition of the Roman Empire in which these churches existed was worse. Much, much worse. I don't know if we're getting there. Maybe we'll get there eventually. Maybe we'll catch up. Big competition. We seem to like to compete over broken things. Two weeks ago I read our nation leads the world in fatherless households. Wow, what a victory to win. But here's the hope. True light is not overcome by the growing darkness. The church in these letters, the symbol of, of the church is a lampstand. The church is a lampstand. You cannot overpower light by adding more darkness. The more darkness you add, the more clarified the light becomes, so that even a tiny light seems more brilliant as the room around it grows darker. And as long as Christ and kingdom are our source, we will be the light. But if we are sourced by the world, then we're just another flavor of darkness. We're deceiving ourselves. No matter how fine we regard ourselves, we will be dark when the darkness approaches. We will be, as Jesus says, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So there's another revelation principle here, and that is that the empire is not as it appears. This is part of the, the really, the, the one of the core purposes of revelation is to pull back this curtain on the spiritual realm so that we can see that the work that God is doing is the real work. The world that God is building is the real world. And that everything that we're convinced of is real and important and worth treasuring All of that is an illusion. All of that is a smoke and mirror show. Things that seem to matter, the treasures and idols of this world, will turn to dust. The powers and the principalities of our age, these are all fleeting and insignificant once you know kingdom is. The victors in this battle are not the ones who serve the lie of the empire. But those who know and keep the deep truths of the kingdom. And so Jesus goes on, verse 19 Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come and eat the person, and they with me. And of course, this message is for the Laodiceans, but really it's for for, for all the seven churches and, and by extension all the churches of the Roman Empire and by further extension all the churches in all places in all times. The Lord's intent is to restore our light. Jesus doesn't give these harsh, difficult messages to the church because he wants to hurt them. He's not just latching out. It's like us as parents. Sometimes as parents we get angry with our kids and we say things in anger. Most of the time we discipline our kids. We don't enjoy it. We don't do it because it's fun to discipline our kids. We do it because we love them and we, we want them to be good citizens and good people and good believers. That's what that is about. This is what it's about for God. He says these very difficult things. He lays out these very stark painful to hear messages doing that to inflict pain on his audience no he's doing it because he wants to restore their light wants to restore them to what they're intended to be these are the most important things get them right get the most important things right if we are enamored of worldly things of worldly priorities we are missing the big picture. We are missing the point. You know, people ask us sometimes why we're focused on the things that we're focused on. Why do you keep talking about kingdom? You keep talking about mission. You keep talking about discipleship. Why do you talk about these things? Because these, these things are right. <laughs> this is where the truth is. This is where the hope is. This is what it's all about. Some of you are wondering, what is the big deal with Honor Club? And why is our preacher involved? We've got a youth minister, for heaven's sake. Why is a preacher involved with Honor Club? Why do you spend all this time focused on students? Why as a church do we spend so much of our time and energy and resources on students? I'm going to tell you exactly why I do. Because from... From the mid-teens to the mid-20s, the human brain is actively creating and then editing neural pathways. What does that mean? It means what you're doing as a young adult is a very good indication of what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. And guess what we've reserved that time for? Sowing your wild oats. We let kids go off the reservation to sow their wild oats and hope that they'll come back and be good Christian people. The truth is, whatever you're doing when you're 18, 19 years old, there's a very good chance you'll be doing some version of that for the rest of your life. Now, it's not that the rest of us can't learn. It's not that we can't add neural pathways. It just takes a lot more work for us. This is why it's so much easier for young people to learn a language or learn an instrument or learn how to program the VCR. I'm dating myself with that reference. We can learn, it's just more difficult, and I'll tell you something, most of us simply choose not to. We just resolve ourselves to, well, I'm not comfortable with change. And that's that's our write-off. The young people are naturally developing all these neural pathways, and they'll begin, their brain will begin to edit out the ones that they don't need. You know what that means? That means if your faith is at the bottom of your priority list when you're a young adult, chances are it'll remain at the bottom of your priority list for the rest of your life. We do what we do because these young people are our future these young people are hope for the kingdom, and we will do whatever it takes to help them learn to love Jesus at a time in their life when they will love Jesus for the rest of their life. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And again, we've typically used this passage in terms of evangelism. we preached it that way. Jesus is standing at the door. He's knocking and waiting for you to receive him. It's not a bad way to teach it. It's not the context of the passage. The context of the passage is a little more alarming than that. The context of the passage is that Jesus is outside the church meeting, at the door knocking, and the church is ignoring him. Can you picture that? A church that's so busy with what they're doing that they can't bother to let Jesus in. And Jesus says, look, you just open the door and I'll come dine with you. We will have fellowship together. I'll be a part of your community. The church at Laodicea has a closed door, and they're saying, we, yeah, we're we're good. we're good. We have what we need. We're fine. Go go visit some other church that needs you more than, than we do. We're gonna rely on our worldly resources. We're going to rely on our human traditions. We're going to rely on our personal truths. And there's not really room for Jesus in that space. But Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is remarkable, folks. The restored church enjoys the fellowship and the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us two pictures. One of him coming in and dining with us, invading our space and sitting at our table and sharing with us in some of the most common activities of human life to just be with us. The king of all creation sitting at the table. And then he gives us this other picture where if we're victorious, if we're faithful, if we overcome, we will sit by his side on the throne as he sits by the side of God. To be under the authority of Jesus, but also to be participants in that authority, respected members of his court. And this is a question of faith. But not faith in the way that we sometimes talk about and think about faith as though faith is sort of the ability to believe in unbelievable things. This is all about faith in regard to what we rely upon. What is our source? Revelation is going to teach us that the empire is an illusion, that the treasures of this world are nothing but sand. It will slip through your fingers and be gone. Jesus is our real world.